Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Star Trek podcast. Join us on our continuing mission to explore intersectional diversity in infinite combinations. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. With me today are crew member Andy. Hello. And our guest, Annika. Hi. Annika, you've been here plenty of times before, but why don't you reintroduce yourself to our listeners anyway? Hi, I'm Annika, aka Pixie, and I am a Star Trek fan from childhood. I grew up with TNG and Voyager, and I really never stopped loving it. I now have a Star Trek podcast, too, Antimatterpod, which you can find at antimatterpod.com and antimatterpod on social media. Yay! <laughs> when Annika heard we were going to be talking about our topic today, she said, I'm going to be a guest on that episode. Yeah, there wasn't even a question. She informed <laughs> us. <laughs> that topic is Margaret Wander Bonanno's 1987 Star Trek novel, Strangers from the Sky. But before we get into that, we have our typical housekeeping to do first. Our show is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month and get awesome rewards from thanks on social media to silly watch along commentaries and informal podcast episodes on non-track topics. Visit us on patreon.com slash women at warp to find out more. If you're looking for podcast merchandise, you can check out our Tee Public store. There are so many designs with new ones being added all the time on everything from t-shirts to coffee mugs to even wall tapestry sometimes. Find us at tpublic.com slash stores slash women at warp. Also, our remaining convention merchandise is now available to purchase online. We have our boldly gathering design, which celebrates 50 years of Star Trek conventions as both an enamel pin and a patch plus our 2021 embroidered patch featuring an L-Cars display playing the podcast. To look at or purchase these items, head to womenatwarp.com slash shop. Supplies are limited and will not be restocked. And finally, we have a word from Elisa. Hey there, this is Elisa Pearl, one of the hosts of Women at Warp, and I am here to tell you about a new campaign that I am running. Many of you know that I'm a professional actor, writer, and tabletop RPG game master and player. Uh, if you don't know what all that means, that's okay. All you need to know is that if you like Marvel, if you like superhero stories led by women and people of color and queer people, we have a campaign for you. It's called Marvel's New Vanguard Piercing Chaos. I'm the game master. We are telling amazing multiversal stories uh, using Marvel canon and characters as inspiration. You can watch it live starting Wednesdays on July 6th at twitch.tv slash Kira858. That's K-I-R-A. 858. We also will be coming to podcasts at some point in the future, but for now, you can watch us on Twitch for free. You don't even have to sign up for a Twitch account if you never have done that. So check us out, Marvel's New Vanguard, Piercing Chaos. And with that, let's get into this topic, Strangers from the Sky. This was a patron suggestion from our good friend Robert Reyes. So we're all wearing red sweaters today. You just can't tell. Originally published in July 1987, it has since had a second edition in 93 and a third in 2006. It's the second of Pocketbook's giant Star Trek novels. The first was Enterprise, The First Voyage by Vonda McIntyre. 
it's a, a 400 page Star Trek novel in the 80s, which is unusual. It earns its its name as a giant one. And uh, also has an audio adaptation, which is read by George Takei and Leonard Nimoy. And it takes that 400 page novel and brings it down to about an hour and a half of audio. They cut out all the good stuff. <laughs> so if you haven't read this novel and you want to listen to this episode, you can go find that audio adaptation. It might be on YouTube, maybe, I don't know, but uh, it's there and it'll only take an hour and a half of your time if you don't speed it up. Annika, since this is one of your favorites, can you give us a short summary on the novel? Okay. <laughs> a short summary. I'm, I'm going to skip all the good parts too. <laughs> so it's divided into two parts. The present part uh, takes place before Wrath of Khan, like in between the uh, motion picture and Wrath of Khan when they're all on Earth being retired, but not really. And the second half takes place in one of Enterprise's first missions with Captain Kirk uh, and Mr. Spock. And McCoy isn't there yet because it's pre- where no man has gone before. And basically, in the past, they come across a disappearing planet and through shenanigans end up in the past, more in the past, um, of now, let's say, 2022 Earth. I don't know exactly when it is. I think it's like 2057 or it's something like random 63 like that. 63 something. 63. No, so. For, no, 45. It's, it's 2045. It's. Because it's 19 the, years before actual first contact. Right. And they become embroiled in a first contact mission with the Vulcans, but the Vulcans aren't supposed to be there because, as Sue mentioned, it's 19 years before the actual first contact happened. And so our crew of Kirk, Spock, Gary Mitchell, Elizabeth Daner, Lee Kelso, along with Egyptian Merlin Parneb, have to fix time and make sure that they don't know that the Vulcans are early and they have to get the Vulcans back into space. And then in the present, Kirk is reading a book where all of that happens. And it doesn't mention him, but he remembers everything. And he starts having nightmares. He has a psychotic break and is institutionalized for it. And uh, basically, he has forgotten that that happened, and the, but the book recalls it. And he has to team up with Spock and McCoy to figure out why he has memories that he's not supposed to have. And it turns out that he's not insane. He just actually lived that time and succeeded in getting the Vulcans back into space so that nobody knew except whoever wrote this book. Yeah, there's a lot that happens. Yeah, <laughs> there are so many subplots. There are like 10,000 original characters. It's intense. It's definitely a giant novel and I so this is the reason I wanted to be on this episode so badly is because this is the Star Trek novel that I have purchased three times <laughs> because every time I, tw I moved twice and both times I decided that I would never need to read Strangers from the Sky again and so I could leave it behind or you know not 
I could give it away and not worry about it because it was okay. I had I had read it, I enjoyed it, but it's also terrible. Like <laughs> it's not a good book, but it's very very enjoyable. <laughs> so I got rid of it twice moving and then both times I wanted to read it again. I just had this like itch of, you know what I really wanted to do is read Strangers from the Sky. And so the third time I purchased it as a digital copy so that I wouldn't have to think about moving and it could just move <laughs> with me. It would be okay. Oh, I love it. I found this very interesting but also, I think my biggest issue with it was exactly why Annika struggled to summarize it, which is it kept switching perspectives. It kept switching, like, time periods. Like, every time – it felt like every time I was starting to get focused on what was happening and, like, interested in what was happening because the characters are are pretty good, I – would get confused or I would get pulled out and we would switch perspectives again. And so I would start getting invested in again and then it would switch perspectives and I'd be like, no, (laughs) (laughs) but I was finally interested in this plot. Like, let me go back to there. Yeah. So I've read in the past week or so, several different reviews and takes and threads about this novel and the reviewer on tour.com actually Ellen Cheeseman Meyer refers to this story as a plot squid. <laughs> there was a, a moment where I was like trying to figure out how I would describe how the, the different chronological perspectives of it. And I started thinking wibbly wobbly timey wimey. Uh-huh. Mm. So plot squid makes perfect sense to me. I love that. <laughs> but it's, it's true. There is so, so much happening in this novel and so many subplots there's even an entire one that I don't think I internalized as I read it. Is it the terrorists? With the terrorists, yeah. Every time the terrorists came out, like I read the things. I read the, the story. I read every word. But I just didn't take it in. And it's like my brain just shut off to that storyline. Exactly. That is exactly how I would describe it as well. <laughs> I I was angry that the terrorists were were kept in the audio recordings. I was like, <laughs> no, this is the worst part of the book. Can we just not? How then, if you took the terrorists out, how then would you have an external threat at the end? So I see why they had to keep it in. I just wish, I guess, it was more creative, like, on, you know, back to the, to Banano. Like, I wish that she had come up with a better external threat than the terrorists because I just, I, I can't focus on them. They, it's like I see Ratcher and Easter and I just turn off and I can't, like, I just don't want to understand it. It's like, I do, I've read this book so many times. I still don't know who they even are, like what country <laughs> they stand for. And I just, and I, and yet I don't actually want to like spend the time trying to figure it out. <laughs> But I would argue that the threat from the media is enough of a threat. The idea that this story is going to get blown out of proportion, that, you know, the news of the Vulcans is going to get to the world and people are going to freak out, that they're going to be demonized and vilified. I think that, in my mind, that's enough. But it's also used 
to like at the at the end of the novel in our epilogue, we sort of get this nice little bow tied about like, because these two individuals died in this confrontation, terrorism went away. (laughs) 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 And because the, the kelp were saved, then like food shortages were no longer a thing (laughs) like this one incident and the way it played out like changed the trajectory of earth and society forever to be fair i think that's kind of the point of the book yeah yeah i think so too yeah the the point of the book is like small decisions beget large decisions beget whole changes in in time and space apparently and i i like that theme and okay so we've been i I do want to just say like let's finish up our dragging of the terrorist subplot and then i can move on to some things i did like but first of all if i'm understanding correctly one of the terrorists was like a cyborg (laughs) with like laser eyes (laughs) And that is way more interesting than it should be, and yet is not explored at all. Yeah, it's like two sentences. It's it's kind of like she's describing hair and eye color. She's like, and also he's a cyborg with laser eyes, and then just keeps going. And I'm like, wait, 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 that's actually pretty cool. Like, tell me more about this cyborg man and why he's a terrorist. But my bigger issue with like this is... Uh, This idea of, like, these cartoonishly evil guys that are apparently just wanting to do chaos. Most terrorists have an actual goal. And actually, the, the, the addition of having an IRA terrorist, like, straight from the Troubles, like, plunked into this future time, was really interesting to me because it made it seem like there wasn't an actual reason for the IRA and, like, rational goals and, and reasons why they were, you know, bombing things. So I just found all of that very, like, they were there. They had no motivation that made sense. One of them was an, a, a cyborg. <laughs> and then one of them was, like, an actually kind of offensive Irish stereotype. Mm-hmm. And then the offensive Irish stereotype apparently like, made a a mistake during the mission and decided he was just going to sit there until he died. Again, no no explanation for this whatsoever is given. So, yeah, not the strongest part of the various plot squids. Yeah, you bring up the stereotypes. There there are several. Are we going to uh, move into the sorcerer? Well, there's, before we even get to the sorcerer, there's the whole, like, dream time situation yeah the the new age indigenous people yeah Ooh. i mean it's just it's not great i forgot about them <laughs> <laughs> there is so much and like actually i remember when i was first reading this i was like i am really cool with maori characters being here mm-hmm. but it felt very much like what unfortunately Star Trek has had a long history of doing with indigenous characters, which is just, ooh, spooky. You know what I mean? I mean, I did, I certainly can't say I'm an expert, but I, I tried to do some research and like, I learned that dreams are very important to that culture, but I couldn't find 
anything even remotely close to what is described in this novel <laughs> that 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 Kirk participates in. I could be wrong. I could be looking for the the wrong thing, but like for for me, it's currently just a little cringe. A little? <laughs> More than a little? I got a lot of Chicote flashbacks. So I just want to say that 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 whole section is in the first part, which is in the present. So it's not even in 2045, it's in the 23rd century or 24th century or whatever. So it's like these are It's like Chicote. Yeah, it's very it's very made up indigenous ideals mm-hmm. <laughs> based on you know crystals and and new age tiny wimey stuff from whenever this book was written 1985. So there it's on one hand, like there is this huge cast and she goes out of her way to make it very diverse, to add a lot of different cultures in the to the huge cast. That's but true. But they are not they're fully fleshed characters, but it's not about their identities at all. Like and the and this guy the and the Maori people are not fully fleshed characters. And it it's strange because it's suggested that the Maori shaman type person and Parneb, the Egyptian Merlin sorcerer, are related in some way. Okay, I missed that. Like at the end when the at the end when the kid it, the kid who he befriends and who brought him to the shaman in the first place, then at the end that kid like finds the, the 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 peace symbol that's jeremy grayson's that's but like there's a lot of weirdness going on i didn't realize that was supposed to be the same kid i think it's supposed to be the same kid because they're, they're spots in the same place i thought the kid was supposed to be parnab i mean right so that means that parnab and that kid are the same are the same wait no but the kid the kid that kirk befriends is in the south pacific and the kid that spock meets who is supposed to be parnab is in egypt so i would just like to take let's pause for a second and think about what it would be like to (laughs) if you haven't read this book to listen to us talking about this book like you would feel high you would feel (laughs) you would feel like you ate too many edibles (laughs) like wandering the desert so yeah i would say overall i didn't get any of that but it's entirely possible because honestly who knows because one thing that she does have a tendency to do is to try and tie everything up in a really like meaningful way so like the number of times that it was like he just happened to have a relative in Boston and then that relative also happened to be like the worldwide leader in peace rights and refugees and stuff. Uh Uh, Like that stuff (laughs) is all like too coincidental to be realistic, but it was very clearly deliberate. She was trying to show that everything is connected, right? And I get that and I am fine with that, but... So uh, the the Maori part, um, yes, not great. I also really was confused 
Well, and I, the thing about Parnab is he was very much, to me, an Orientalist stereotype of, like, like every Middle Eastern kind of, again, spooky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Stereotype of, like, this mysterious guy. And apparently, I don't even understand, like, did he have powers? Like, he had powers, but I don't understand why he had powers. <laughs> Supposedly, like I was getting the impression that he was supposed to be like a Trelane type oh. and very, very long lived. And they called him a sorcerer. But living backwards. And like yeah, Marla. living backwards in time, which like, it, it's a, this feels to me like a very Doctor Who conceit, not so much a Star Trek conceit. Well, I mean, his whole section felt fantasy like rather than sci fi. But like, sorry, if, if Parnab is supposed to be a child, you know, in the 23rd century when he meets Spock, he also, like, he ends his life in what we consider, like, ancient history in, in Thebes, right? So he's in- incredibly long-lived. Huh. So if he, uh, yeah, and is he an alien who just lives on Earth, or is he some kind of magic human? Or, like, yeah, like Andy was saying, none of this is ever explained. <laughs> Well, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the cyborg guy in that it's like, this is his description of, it's like flavor. It's not like plot. It's like aesthetic. He has enough power to move the away team from M155, this reappearing and disappearing planet, back in time and space to Earth. Well, doesn't he also have the power to move the entire planet? Because isn't that what he's doing? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, like, that's pretty uh, impressive. Would like to know more about that. And yet he also lives underground in an underground pyramid and, like, has tea parties. And it's very (laughs) strange. Like, he's just a bunch of... I think what you said flavors is is a good description. It's like a recipe of a person. So I thought that Spock, that they leave Antarctica and go to... <laughs> oh, right, they're also in Antarctica. They go to New Zealand. <laughs> I'm trying to explain why I thought it was the same kid. So they, in the past, they escape with everybody in the Vulcans in their, like, submarine. <laughs> and, they, and they go to New Zealand, and that's where they meet up with Parnev, who's come in from Egypt... <laughs> And that's where Spock buries his peace sign, which I want to talk about in a minute as well. Um, And then, so he goes to get it, and so he is in New Zealand, and that's why I thought it was the same person. I'm. I have to look. (laughs) But it's but it's not. It's not important. I don't think. No, 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 no. So I think what we need to do is the three of us need to put together a um a wall like Charlie does. In it's always sunny with like the the strings, and then yeah, like we need uh-huh. a world map, and we need to plot like okay, so they were here at this time, and they were here at this time, and like it needs to be like we and we need pictures of everybody. It needs to look absolutely ridiculous, and then we can finally figure out is that kid the same kid? It says Spock walked alone through the crowded streets of Thebes. Oh well, why is his Whatever, it's fine. (laughs) I don't care. After they sent the Vulcans back in the missile. Then they go back to Thebes. Then they go back to Egypt because Parnab has to send them back to their future. 
oh, from his okay. tea party underground pyramid. Okay, tea Annika, get the red pyramid. yarn. Get the red yarn. <laughs> they, they're going from the Pacific to back to Thebes and then back to M155. <laughs> and then back to the Enterprise. And then, oh yes. my gosh. And then when they make it back to the Enterprise, they've forgotten everything until he starts reading a book who's written by question mark <laughs> how did they know to write the book well the epilogue where they tell about the futures of everybody who is involved in this cute little excursion like so i love that they they do mention that there were strangers that they don't know who they are and that's obviously our crew but they you know they give everybody this happy ending where Tatya decides to become like the alien welcome committee and Yoshi retires to Vulcan and then like but the military people die before the Vulcans get there which is really sad (laughs) and they are like depressed like always looking at the up at the stars and trying to figure it out but don't remember what they've forgotten so what was the question that I was answering? <laughs> the, the book within a book. Who wrote the book? Oh, who wrote the book? So I would say that it's probably like someone's child, you know, grew up with these stories of something. Didn't they say it was a journalist? So so one of the media, like a an ancestor of one of the media people who wrote things down? I really, really thought that it, they said, I think it was in the beginning... That, like, the last person involved had died and their journals had been, like, released to the public. And a journalist took the – or somebody took those journals and wrote this book from them. Look, Sue, so much happened between the beginning of this book and the end. Like, I know. And I wrote – I read this book in, like, two days. So – I'm not convinced I didn't just make that up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so – We've dragged this book thoroughly for like 30 minutes, so I would like to talk about some of the things I really did like. Yes. Yes. Let's do that. That's a good idea. So first of all, I actually, as I I kind of alluded to before, I really like the themes of this book, and I really like just the, the, probably the number one overarching theme is about working together and um, communication and like listening to each other and like being open to other people. All of that is very Star Trek. All of that is very awesome. And she does a fair job of exploring that theme. In fact, like, one of the things that was so frustrating about all of this other stuff, the plot squid, is that it took away from what she was doing really well. Because when she was, like, exploring that theme, she was really exploring that theme well. And then I would suddenly be like, oh, wait, I'm back in the Antarctica with the cyborg. You know, and that was frustrating to me because I actually really enjoyed that part. And I thought a lot of these characters were really good and I really liked them and I really liked their relationships. I really liked Tatya and Yoshi and I really liked um, how Sorel kind of like fit into them. And there was a part of me that was like, am I starting to OT3 this? And I was like, a little (laughs) bit. A tiny bit. I kind of thought that's where they were going. Yeah, and I <laughs> would have liked that. I, I genuinely would have liked that just because, for one thing, I think polyamory is something that 
like I would like to see more good media portrayals of because it's a thing. And I just feel like in the universe, if we're talking about like all of the living beings in the universe, we should see it more often than we do in Star Trek. So all of that I thought was really good and I really enjoyed that. And even the characters I didn't like, like as people, like Melody Sawyer, I thought she was really well done though. Like I thought her motivations made sense and like she was well drawn and all of those things. I just, she kind of represented the worst impulses, but she did it really well. So yeah, I'll stop there. But like overall, there was lots of parts of this book that I enjoyed. And then she would just yank me out of what I was enjoying and and set me back down in Boston, you know? (laughs) I agree. I really like Melody and Jason and how they, when we we first meet them, they're super, super close. But then we see how they really take the two extremes of the reactions to, you know, learning that aliens are on the planet. And I think that's a really interesting contrast. I like the way those characters were formed, even if I didn't, I, I agree, I didn't necessarily like Melody as a person by the end of the story. I also really like that this book shows us a huge shift in the Kirk-Spock friendship. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When we first begin the story, Kirk is very new to command and I, I guess like his crew has been hazing him is the impression we're supposed to get. And he has this, like, antagonistic relationship with Spock. And he's not sure he can trust him. And he thinks that Spock is playing jokes on him. And with with this appearing and disappearing planet and this whole situation. And, like, is surprised when they find him again in the past, like, how good it is to see him. And they sort of, like, come to this understanding during this mission. And then become the Kirk and Spock that we know from the show. Yeah, I didn't get the impression so much that they were hazing him so much as he was feeling really insecure. So he was paranoid and Mm -hmm. like things that were normal. He was, you know, viewing as a challenge to his authority or his his abilities. And then I also enjoyed just like we got to see kind of the turn in their relationship, which I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed seeing them come from, like, okay, they're new, they don't really know how to relate to each other yet, and then, like, Kirk, with the backdrop of everything else we were talking about, about this, you know, first contact situation, realizing that he's been short-sighted and, you know, um, prejudiced, and, like, trying to get past that. I thought it was great. I also really like, because we have the two different time periods that we get to see Kirk and Spock when they're not the people that we know and they don't have the relationship when they're very new to each other where, yeah, Kirk is really paranoid and thinks that Spock is playing games with him and Spock is completely confused (laughs) because he would never. And over like the, I love the, the part where Spock takes pictures of the planet like every minute or something because he wants to prove that he wasn't playing games and that it the the planet absolutely was there and he like overdoes it by a lot (laughs) and like it's just these little small character beats for for these characters that in the present which is the first half of the book 
it's super shifty. Like it's, I don't even shift these two and I'm sitting there going, well, they're married. Yeah. It is just so close in the, in that, in that, the future time period, which makes sense because it's again, right before the wrath of Khan. So they're like at their Zenith of the relationship. And so I really love having the contrast. And then like you're saying, watching it, go from we don't trust each other to we have to trust each other and once we realize that we can we can start building this amazing relationship that we have for so many years i was thinking when i was reading the first half of this book i was like the shippers like this one because (laughs) they were full-on romantic with each other and some of the ways that they described each other got very shippy and i enjoyed that Like, I always enjoy seeing their relationship explored. I mean, obviously, their relationship is so great. And McCoy, too, because we got a lot of good grumpy McCoy in this. So much good (laughs) grumpy McCoy. Yes, definitely. I mean, the strength of the three of them together as a character dynamic was strong enough to propel this franchise to 2022. Let's be Mm -hmm. real. Like, that was Mm -hmm. the strength of the original show. So whenever we get to see that more, I'm always super stoked. I have a bunch of moments highlighted. And one of them is literally McCoy is, is, is thinking, you know, it says, for weal or woe, as McCoy would say, for as long as they both should live. And it's like, (laughs) it's literally like a marriage (laughs) vow. That is a part of this, that is book. It's just, it's incredible to me. I also really like the, the, the other three character us that are not original characters. The ones that all die in where no man has gone before. Because I mean, I love Elizabeth Daner and I only need that one episode to love her, but her getting any attention at all is always good in my book. And then Lee Kelso, I don't even know who that is in in Where No Man Has Gone Before, but he's adorable in this book. Like he's, he is this sort of goofy tech guy who gets all of the fun stuff to do and then disappears. He's like arrested for hacking, basically. Yeah. (laughs) Like he, he, but because he was trying to like make the media circus less of a media circus, but so I, I love him. And then Gary Mitchell, I don't like in this book as much as I don't like him in Where No Man Has Gone Before. So I think he must be very in character. But he has, to be fair, he spends his, most of his time with the terrorist plot. So <laughs> he also just has a bad vibe, man. Like, yeah, he has he has a very misogynistic vibe. Right. He hits on every woman in that he comes across and also, like, encourages everyone else to. And it's just, no. Kind of going back to the Kirk Spock thing, I just want to, uh, the other one that I, I highlighted, because before we move on from how shippy this book is, Spock sat while Kirk paced, listened as Kirk talked, provided, as always, the balance for everything Kirk was, shadow to his sunlight, coolness for his fire, calm against his agitation. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent, man. Love that. <laughs> I gotta say, I don't hate the stuff in Boston. And I think it's because I'm viewing it through, like, Spock-colored glasses. 
just knowing, you know, that uh, Nimoy, like, moved back to Boston at the end of his life and that his family's all from there. Like, I thought it was very cute and not just, like, a tribute to Spock's history, but to Nimoy's history. I might be reading too much into it. No, I agree. I thought it was, I enjoyed those parts. It's just the only criticism I really have about that section is just that it's too convenient. But it's like, very convenient. Him, him meeting his ancestor and like his ancestor was really cool. I really enjoyed their conversations. I also really enjoyed that he's wearing a yarmulke when they first meet and like they mention his, his, you know, marriage to a Jewish woman. I I agree with you, Sue, that I think it was probably deliberately kind of hearkening back to, to Nimoy himself rather than Spock. Um, mm-hmm. And I enjoyed it very much. And it makes Spock Jewish because it's through the wife. Mm-hmm. And I just dig that. I My only issue, I, I mean, I agree that it's very convenient, but also I don't care in fiction. Like, I just, yes. I'm fine with it being convenient. And what my only concern with the whole Jeremy Grayson and the Peace Snick organization subplot is that Spock uses a necklace, a peace symbol necklace, as his only identification <laughs> to travel oh from Boston to Antarctica. <laughs> and everyone's like, cool, no problems. The and- whole history of that idea that, like, the peace symbol was was like used with prominence in the sixties, and then used as an underground symbol in World War Three, and then is so uncommon by twenty forty five that is it is proof that a specific individual sent you. Like you can literally get one in a like gumball machine where you put a you know fifty cents in and you get fake jewelry. I, I realize we're talking about like 1987 looking forward 60 years, but it's still less than 100 years for this symbol <laughs> to right. like fall into obscurity. I'm very confused by that. But I, I like that's too that's the, that's where it becomes too convenient for me. <laughs> it's like that's unbelievable. It's like I can excuse the magical ancestor that is the head <laughs> of the people, but I draw the line. I draw the line at using a peace symbol as a boarding pass. That's one step too far. Exactly. <laughs> I never said I, I am not a Vulcan. I am not logical. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I agree with you just in general. Like, the magical things happen in books. That's fine with me. As long as it feels internally consistent to the characters, I'm usually fine with it and just hand-waving it. But, yeah. That's true. He did manage to... I remember when he got to the point, like, final point where she was like, ID. <laughs> he was like, well. <laughs> like, that's not something I have. But what I do have is this blinged out necklace. What do you think of that? I, I also just love that the line in the book was something like, this was something he was hoping to avoid. <laughs> like so this is like literally aliens on earth like military base like I, that's the other thing is like they all made it there so easily <laughs> and it was like lee kelso's amazing hacking skills <laughs> yeah and like i actually thought that that part i was okay with like the idea that he could like print up 
IDs that would make everybody be cool with them just showing up. I I will buy that. I will, uh, yeah. But then when Gary Mitchell is like, here I am on my snowmobile. (laughs) Like, but are you though? And then Spock obviously just showing up out of nowhere with his (laughs) necklace. (laughs) That stuff was a little bit too much. But I did like the idea of like, they get there and Lee Kelso's like, hey, by the way, I'm an amazing hacker. Here's your new identity go forth and then they all split up and like started like living lives and apparently gary mitchell speaks polish mm-hmm. uh, like all that stuff i'm down with like let these people be ridiculously competent i love that bring bring me more magic hackers speaking of convenient i really enjoy that elizabeth daner is given like she's the only one with a real person that she's taking over their position and it's like a psychologist who specializes in potential aliens whose entire village was destroyed. <laughs> was destroyed. So no one knows what she looks like. Oh, your whole family's dead. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I'm going to, like, I've kind of come back around on this book just from this discussion. So, like, I finished the book last night and was like, Oh no, because I, I always hate it when I have to talk about things I don't like because I, that's not what I like to do, you know? And I like, I don't, like, what if she listens to this and is sad that I didn't like her book? You know, like, I don't enjoy it. So there, last night I finished and I was like, oh no, I didn't like it. But like, the more we talk about it here, the more I'm realizing that this book is camp. And therefore, I love it. So I have come completely back around. I am getting on Goodreads as we speak. And I'm going to change my uh, rating from three stars to five stars. Because the more we talk about it, the more I realize this book is amazing. (laughs) This book is amazing. I absolutely agree. Again, not good, but amazing. Like, incredible. There is a more serious topic that I want to discuss for a minute. And that is the idea of the Vulcan Prime Directive. They have this idea that rather than be detected, they're going to self-destruct that they're going to death before detection, right? And But by the time that the Federation comes around, it's very, very different. They're detected all the time in first contact situations, and it's never even been part of the conversation that we've seen in a Star Trek show of like, we need to kill ourselves so we're not found by the inhabitants of this planet. And I, it got me thinking in the way my brain works of like – did humans soften up the Vulcans or did they make some concession? Was there a big fight about what this prime directive together should be? So this is one of the things that I really love about this book. And it's that they have these, again, cast of thousands, so many original characters, and they're all interrelated. And this is brought up in the beginning with Talera, who is the elder Vulcan who ends up stranded with her son. And she grew up in space because her father was, like, one of the first space explorers uh, on Vulcan. And he's the one who, like, came up with this Death Before Destruction Prime Directive. And her husband, so Sorrel's father, is a, I think it's called Interventionist, 
And they and so this is only in like a couple paragraphs in the beginning, but I find it fascinating <laughs> that she introduces it, the author introduces this idea of the death before destruction Vulcans and the interventionist Vulcans and literally creates a, a child of the two. Like Soral is the child of both sides. So he like throughout the, the novel, you end up like thinking about Soral as it's sort of like with the Kirk and Spock stuff where there's two sides that have to eventually come together. And so I think that the humans did influence it. And I also think that the interventionist Vulcans <laughs> already existed. So they already had some people on their side. And Sorrel going through this adventure and seeing that there are people who will work to preserve both history and life. And that that is a worthy goal. So I think that, like, that is what eventually becomes the prime directive, that as we know it. Uh, I actually want to talk a little bit about Sorrel and his perspective on this, because there is a really amazing moment where he's kind of like, at the very beginning, where he's kind of pushing back on Talera and, like, some of her, like, ways about going uh, to observe and not to you know, interfere or whatever. And she gets a little bit Vulcan snappy with him. And she basically is like, before we enter orbit, you're going to need to do a study of all record tapes designated colonialism. I will expect a full report. And I (laughs) loved that. That was amazing to me. Like, first of all, it gave me such a good sense of what the relationship was like and what she was like as a character, but also kind of the underpinnings of where this prime directive kind of stuff comes from, both the Vulcan version we see here and our um, more uh, well-known Star Trek version that we have now. um, The underpinnings is like, they're trying to avoid colonialism. Do they succeed? Is it problematic still? Yeah. I think it's a really murky ethical area and, hey, if you want to listen to us talk about it, we have an episode on both the Prime Directive and colonialism in Star Trek. And I think it gets to, into a really nuanced place. But where where the idea comes from is they are trying to avoid colonialism. And I just love that little moment. And it kind of goes to what you were speaking to. I just really like the idea that this encounter between Tatia and Yoshi and Saral and Talera not only affected Earth's trajectory, but Vulcan's. Yeah. And I hadn't thought about it that way until your response, Hanukkah. So that's cool. Well, and it goes back to the major theme of this book that is really compelling. And she literally, in the book, says neither Vulcan nor Earth could have achieved what they have without Mm -hmm. the other. Neither could do it alone. And I love that. Because I think some of the ways that we think about Vulcans and we think about the Vulcan-human relationship is very much like we were a hot mess and then they showed up and they were like, (laughs) okay, have you considered not being hot mess? And then (laughs) humans were like, 
wow, these people have the right idea. We should actually like not do all of this that we've been doing. We've been doing too much. And then, so there's kind of a, almost a patronizing vibe and not in a bad way, I don't think, but I do think that we generally, that's how we generally think about it. We think of the Vulcans being the wise ones and the humans needing their guidance. But it's yeah. nice to think of that as a relationship that goes both ways. Like, and it always goes back to Kirk and Spock, like always. Kirk needs Spock and Spock needs Kirk. They can't do it alone, which is the whole point of this book. And I really enjoyed that aspect of this book. And you're not there yet, Andy, but that's sort of how it's portrayed in Enterprise. Mm-hmm. That, like, the Vulcans came in and they're running the show and they won't let the humans do what they want to do or explore how they want to explore. And it's very antagonistic for a while. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I think Melody Sawyer is a great example of this, where she's like, stop being so freaking noble. It's making me mad. You know, like, she was like, are you perfect? Are you trying to pretend to be perfect? Like, I don't trust this perfection, you know? And yeah, she kind of sucked in a lot of ways. But like, she has a point that, like, that would not, a lot of people would react poorly to that. And do an enterprise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in in the scene where after she says you, you both of you need to, the only way you're going to convince Talera is if you go together, and then they do. And so one of one of the things is that Talera can't be mentally like she can't be mind wiped, so she's definitely going to remember all of this. So we're changing her trajectory as a person as well as setting history back and I love the moment where they tell her and then she has to decide and she looks you know Spock reveals that he is a Vulcan and she you know has sort of this psychic connection with him type thing where she figures out that he is both human and Vulcan and then she looks at Kirk and so she's she understands that that Spock is like her in certain ways because he is a Vulcan but he's also not a Vulcan and she has always felt like she was a little bit different from all her Vulcan peers because she loves space so much and she grew up there and she loves watching aliens and then she looks at Kirk and has the realization that Spock isn't the only kindred spirit, that Kirk is also a kindred spirit because he is also someone who loves to live in space and in finding new things and interested in relationships between different cultures. And then, so she, and I think the line is that she looks at the future and accepts the challenge or something like that. Yeah, that was And I just really think nice. that was so powerful. Like, I just, I loved the idea of, like Andy saying, the actual theme of this book is we have to come together in order to create the future that we want. Yeah. Basically, if you can get past all of the camp plot squids, <laughs> the heart of this book is very powerful. And it's really easy to like if your if your mind starts not caring about something i would just say allow it and, and it'll be fine then you can, you, then you can just care about the things that you actually do care about i like that there was a tense tennis scene <laughs> yes 
where we could have it could have all fallen apart because Vulcans are too good at tennis. It's just it's very, very specific. I think though it does also like kind of take the piss out of Star Trek a little bit for having Vulcans appear so perfect to humans. You've never played yeah. this game before. You don't have the right equipment, and you're beating a someone who used to be a pro at this game. You're barefoot out. Yeah. <laughs> But it's also like I, uh, you know, I really liked Andy's uh, description of the humans were a hot mess, and then the Vulcans came in and told them, "Have you considered not being a hot mess?" <laughs> that, that was great. <laughs> but I also, I, in my opinion, and I am like known for this, the Vulcans are also a hot mess. <laughs> yeah. They, they are really, but like they are went too far in their in their side of things and have created just as many problems. Well, one of the things that I found so very compelling about the Vulcans and the reason why they're my favorite is I love the idea of they actually feel really, really deeply. And they basically feel so deeply they freaked themselves out. They're like, we are the drama and it's too much. <laughs> so we need to find a way to hide that part and like dampen it as much as possible. And then, you know, that's where we get, you know, Vulcans, where they're like, they're like volcanoes. You know, there's so much going on underneath and they're trying to pretend like there's not. And I find them endlessly fascinating. And it's one reason why I really, I think it's hard to find someone who can act, like really play a Vulcan well, because they have to portray someone who looks like deadpan and like they're expressionless while also mm -hmm. showing the immense amount of emotion that's underneath. And mm -hmm. we've been very lucky in this regard with the casting of, of many of our Vulcans. So yeah. Love me some Vulcans. Bring more Vulcans. I do also want to give a shout out. So we were talking a little bit about Sorrel and how perfect the Vulcans are. One thing I enjoyed is how out of her way she went to tell us how hot he was over and over again. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. And I also really wanted to give a shout out to Velvet Dark Eyes, which I have never heard before, but she repeated a lot. And it reminded me that the previous book that we read by her, which is Dwellers in the Crucible, uh, she goes on and on about her Byzantine eyes, Cleante's Byzantine eyes. And I love that they made a cameo. Mm -hmm. our, our lesbians made a cameo in this book. And she found a way to bring up Cleante's Byzantine eyes yet again in a totally different book. And I find that to be such a power move, and I respect it so much. <laughs> There's just one more thing from that uh, Tor.com review that I want to bring up, and that is Cheesemeyer writes, Margaret Wonderbanano is wrestling not just with the plot squid, but with race and class issues in disparate centuries. Yes, true. Mm. And that's definitely there, but I would say I wish it were a little more forward. And that might just be me looking at it from, you know, 2022. But there's a whole scene between Sawyer and Nayere about, you know, how are how are these Vulcans going to be treated if the world knew about them? And the, Jason just is just like, well, I know more than you think I know or something, or I know better than you. And But it's just not like 
the, his descriptions are offhanded and like it's oh his family back in Lagos and it's not as forward as I want it to be it's almost like mm. it's hidden and you only get it if you pick up on it that like this is a black man arguing with a southern white woman about race yeah I think that it is it is too subtle but maybe she was trying for that in 1987 right that's why i'm saying like i have i have future eyes on this book so i can't be totally sure well that's the the common conflict that we have with star trek is it's people writing in you know the in this case 87 or whatever mm-hmm. about the future mm-hmm. with the blinders on from their present and I found that a lot of the language and just even just the way she was writing, the writing style was super dated in a lot of ways. Yes. Like you could tell it was not contemporary. And I always try and give people a break. Like they're doing the best they can. It's really hard to put yourself into the mind of someone from 2047 and also someone from the far off utopian future I just take those those glasses off like it's almost impossible. So I like to think of them as kind of like time capsules so you can mm-hmm. kind of see mm-hmm. how how this woman in 1987 was thinking about some of these things. And and if you look at it from that perspective it becomes a very interesting kind of meta commentary. Yeah. But even for 1987 at times the style and the language felt very flowery. That's actually one of the things I like most about her style is it's super lyrical to me. Mm. And it's an interesting style for Star Trek. And I would be remiss or slash we would get a whole lot of tweets if I didn't just quickly mention that we had some similar stories on screen. We had some some Carbon Creek in our prize where we have Vulcans crashing on Earth much earlier than we thought they did. And also in Picard season two. Uh, we had some Vulcan observers on Earth earlier than we believed. So the Carbon yeah. Creep is. Re- I really feel like it's an homage because they even have the Vulcan here, like uh, Tamir, I think is her name, Tapal's mm-hmm. ancestor, who comes up with the Velcro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> before, <laughs> and so it, it it reminds me of the kelp issue. Of course, Vulcans are are. <laughs> Responsible, responsible for, for Velcro. Velcro. Of course they are. Isn't that makes great? total sense it. to me. <laughs> the, the one thing I want to bring up, um, because I would be remiss if I didn't mention it, is the not great presentation of mental health. Oh, oh yeah. I was like, wait a second. You got a, a scan that showed some stuff, and apparently that means that you no longer have rights? Okay. Like, they, like, hunted him down like he was a yes. criminal, and then they were like, well, you're a prisoner now. Hey! he He's only really let go because Spock shows up and says, well, I have the same brain scans, and you're not allowed to treat me because you don't have any Vulcans on staff. It's like, everything about that is bad. Everything about that is bad. <laughs> I really liked that when when Spock shows up, this psychiatrist lady is like, "Oh, I've made a huge mistake. This is this is gonna go poorly." Like she's super intimidated by him right off the bat, and I'm like, "As you should be. You're you're about to get rocked. Enjoy your life." 
And then there's also that that horrible scene where they're having a a meeting with like Starfleet brass to discuss. Oh yeah, and one Captain of Kirk. Like, and what did Kirk say? <laughs> and it's and and she's like, oh no, I didn't want everyone to know who he was. And it's it like every it's so bad. There's so many red flags going yeah, on here. It's not not great. <laughs> I still would like to pitch my. Um, Star Trek HR show because <laughs> if, if they had a Star Trek HR show where it was just like traveling HR where they have to go to the ships and be like you can't do that like that's <laughs> not okay yes please please do not hunt down an admiral on his own time and throw him in a sack right <laughs> like Okay, well, you can't have a whole staff meeting about someone else's mental health. <laughs> he's and they they like make a point of of saying that he's not on duty, that he's like on vacation. <laughs> they still <laughs> they still hunt him down and then literally institutionalize him for for weeks and tell no one. <laughs> <laughs> if they gave me a lower deck style show to make this Star Trek HR, I would, it would be good. It would be funny. We would have to revisit, like, they'd have to be able to time travel too, but they'll just show up places and be like, sorry, um, can't, can't discuss that in a, in a staff meeting. That's not okay. I think we need to get Mike McMahon on the phone. Yes. And yes. at the very yes. least make this an episode. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I will pitch it to him the next time we so see him good. at a con. Listen, listen. You've done Lower Decks. Now what about this? <laughs> the HR professionals that are just like, no. <laughs> I can think of easily 15 examples just off the top of my head. I know. It's, worrying it's, about it's it. very bad. It's very bad. <laughs> this is a workplace. <laughs> Oh my. Final thoughts on Strangers <laughs> from the Sky? So why don't we start with our guest, Anika. What is your rating of this novel? Well, like I said, uh, I'm going to give two ratings because there's <laughs> the rating of, is this a good, well-plotted, well-presented book slash story? And did I enjoy reading this novel at least 20 times. <laughs> so on the, it's, is it a good book? I would have to say, I think Andy was right in the three stars. <laughs> uh, so I guess it would be three underground pyramid tea parties. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of, did I enjoy this book? And would I recommend reading it? I give it five. <laughs> Excellent. And I started my rating at three stars, but I'm going to end on on five out of five cyborg laser eyes <laughs> because overall the message is there and it's very camp. And is there a lot of problematic stuff? Yes, but it's meta. So, yeah. I I I struggled when I was reading it, but it's fun to talk about. So I enjoy, in the end, I enjoyed it. 
with all of these same caveats, which is essentially what I would tell an individual if recommending this novel. Yeah, I'd, I'd go about the same route. I'm going to go, I'm going to change the scale a little bit and uh, say nine out of 10 antique peace symbols. <laughs> Slash boarding passes. Slash boarding passes. <laughs> So with that, I think we are out of time for today. Um, Annika, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Manic Pixie Dane. And all of I'm linked everywhere else uh, from there. And you can find my podcast at AntimatterPod, AntimatterPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and AntimatterPod.com. And Andy? Yeah, so I am on Twitter at First Time Trek. And I'm Sue. You can find me on Twitter at Spaltor. To learn more about our show or to contact us, visit womenatwarp.com, email us at crew at womenatwarp.com, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at womenatwarp. You can also join our Goodreads book group at goodreads.com. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.